I'm finally at the end of my two weeks in the CVICU, and I am tired. Mainly because it's been early mornings and long days, but honestly it's been one of my favorite rotations. And I think if you listen to this episode, you're going to hear the passion behind how much I enjoy the cardiac transplants, but also just being in the CVICU in general, getting to watch in real life hemodynamics of how patients heal after cardiac surgery, when complications come up, how we're able to help stabilize patients, and really just how far we've come technologically and scientifically in the field of cardiac surgery and intensive care. So in this episode, I'm going to take you a little bit behind the scenes of what my day-to-day looks like in the CVICU, which is the cardiovascular ICU. And I'll also give you a little bit of insight as to what it looks like to take care of cardiac transplant patients. I think this episode shows a good blend of showing you what my regular day-to-day life looks like as a fellow, but also leaving you with some learning opportunities that hopefully can be useful in your career or is just something cool that you learned today. So I hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to Collecting My Observations. Enter into the stream of thoughts that flow through the mind of an ICU fellow who is on his way to becoming an anesthesiologist and intensivist. This is where patients live on the verge of life and death. So when I matched to Beth Israel, At the time that I was interviewing, I knew that they were hiring a new heart transplant surgeon and that this was going to be an emerging division within their cardiac surgery department. And now that I'm in the CVICU, I have encountered my first couple of heart transplant patients. So the CVICU itself is its own beast, but throw on top of that the responsibility and the learning curve of taking care of heart transplant patients. And you can say this is probably going to be one of my most memorable rotations of this fellowship, at least so far. A couple of disclaimers for this episode. I'm going to try and be as vague as possible about the patients that I'm taking care of, just to avoid any privacy and HIPAA concerns. And the treatment that I'm going to discuss in terms of the heart transplant patients, I'm really just going to do a general overview and leave you with a caveat that there are multiple ways to treat patients in medicine, particularly once you get into these subspecialty surgeries. And the decisions that we're using to determine which medications we're using or how we wean medications likely are a result of where our cardiac surgeon trained and where they came from and what they're most comfortable with in terms of recovering their patients. But hopefully you'll get an idea as to what this rotation looks like for me and a general overview of what it's like to take care of a heart transplant patient. So let's go behind the scenes of what the CVICU entails. The mornings start with a 6 a.m. sign-off with the overnight team. So I usually get to the hospital at 5.40 in the morning, drop my things off in our fellow office, and then head over to the CVICU. In the CVICU, there is a conference room with a big screen TV where the overnight mid-level provider, either a nurse practitioner or a physician assistant, pulls up the electronic medical record for the unit. We go through each patient one by one and talk about what happened in the evening and overnight. We'll go over the data for the morning, These are things like labs, 
ins and outs for the patient, what their vent settings are, what drips they're on, what medications they're receiving, things like that. After we finish our sign out, usually it's about 6.30 or 6.45, and then I'll typically go see all the patients in the unit, quickly eyeball them, do physical exam, and just talk to them and see how their night was. When I do my physical exam, I try and make it head to toe. So in terms of neurological, I assess their awareness. I assess their ability to converse with me, basically rule out any concerns of delirium. I ask them if they're having any pain and make sure that they're getting appropriate analgesic medications. In terms of their heart, I'll check their vital signs, make sure they have an appropriate heart rate, see if they're being paced, see what their blood pressures are. If they have a Swan-Ganz catheter, I'll see what their pulmonary pressures are. Usually these patients also have a CVP from their central line, so I'll see what their central venous pressure is. And if these patients are ventilated, I'll see what their vent settings are. If there's somebody that I think we're going to be extubating in the morning, I'll ask the nurses to wean their sedation this morning and I'll touch base with the respiratory therapist to prepare the patient for extubation. While I'm looking at their chest, I'll also see if they have any chest tubes or any drains coming from there, see how the site looks, and then also see how much is drained in the collection container. Usually our goal is to have drainage of less than 200 mLs in a day. Then we start thinking about pulling the chest tube. Next, I'll move on to their abdomen. I'll see how they're eating, if they are eating. I'll palpate their abdomen to make sure they're not having any pain and that it's soft. And I'll also see if they're having appropriate bowel movements. Lastly, a lot of these patients, you'll try and get a fluid assessment on them or try and see if they're hypo hypervolemic versus hypovolemic. Some of the ways I assess this are I'll check for edema in the ankles or in the feet to see if they're swollen at all. And if they are, I'll see how far up that edema goes. I'll also listen to breath sounds to see if they have any pulmonary edema. And then if they have a Foley catheter in, I'll see how much urine they've been making, assess the color of it, and also assess the quantity that's in the catheter. So after I'm all done with rounding on my patients, I'll go start some notes and try and get those done as soon as possible. That's probably one of the most time-consuming parts of my day, and it's nice to get those out of the way as soon as possible. The next major event for the morning in the CVICU is heart failure rounds. And so the two transplant patients fall under this unit. We will collect as a team at 8 o'clock in the unit and go over the plan for the day. So in heart failure rounds, there are many team members. A lot of them um, don't really know personally, um, but I know that they're involved in the overall care for the patient. So we have the surgeon himself who did the operation. We have the intensivist from the anesthesia side who would be my attending. We have the mid-level provider who works for the cardiac surgeon who also works in the unit. We have a pharmacist, both the CVIC pharmacist as well as a transplant pharmacist. The pharmacists are very helpful in terms of making sure we have the patient on the right medications from a cardiac as well as a transplant perspective. We also have the cardiology heart failure team. So these are people who trained in medicine and then cardiology and then went on to become advanced heart failure specialists. We also have the nurses who are taking care of the patients as well as the nurse educators in the unit. Then there are other people um, like the physical therapist, social work, and case managers for the heart failure team. 
So the way these rounds work are the mid-level provider will go over the objective data for the patient. So again, this includes labs, vital signs, ins and outs for the patient. Any imaging like chest x-rays will also review at this time. After this, the pharmacist will go through all the medications that the patient is on. After this, we'll touch base with a nurse to see if they have any concerns to express for the patient or if they have any patient care concerns for themselves since they are the ones who are doing most of the legwork for these patients as we come up with the plans for them. And then finally, it ends with me presenting the plan for the day in a systems-wise fashion, so going from neurological to cardiovascular to pulmonary and so on and so on. And at first, this was a pretty intimidating process. I remember the first day I had to do this, taking care of my first heart transplant patient, being surrounded by really intelligent people in the room and also people who I didn't really know, but who were all looking at me to present the plan. I remember feeling like a med student all over again in the situation. It's funny being the fellow on rounds, but also feeling like you're the most junior person in the circle of people. You feel like every sort of hiccup or pause that you make in your statements or being scrutinized or being judged for everything you have to say. But after the first couple times, I sort of got into a rhythm. You start to realize that nothing is going to fall through the cracks for these patients. And there's a lot of people who are dictating what their care is going to be collectively. But that also gives you the safety net that these patients aren't relying on you as the end-all be-all. It's a very collaborative team effort to make sure that these patients are going to recover appropriately. So ultimately, as I would present the plan, it would spark conversations, particularly for the most pertinent issues that were going on for the patient. And ultimately, it became a discussion between the heart failure attending, the cardiac surgeon, and the anesthesia attending or intensivist. And ultimately, we would all come up with a plan that we felt like would be most appropriate. Going back to the caveat that I started this episode with, there are multiple ways to treat things in medicine. And a lot of these people, at least from the attendings world, have different backgrounds and different perspectives that they're bringing into the unit and to these clinical situations. So after thorough and thoughtful discussion, we usually all end up in agreement on what we think will be best for that patient going forward for the day. So now I'm going to get into a little bit about what the plans generally look like for these patients. As any good plan does, it starts with a one-liner about the patient. You'll say how old the patient is, what their past medical history is, and then I usually end with how many days after surgery or post-op days they are from their heart transplant. Then I go into their neurological system. So from what I've seen, most of these patients will arrive to the ICU intubated and on sedation. So one of the first things you want to do is start to wean that sedation. Now our sedation goals are usually to a RAS of minus one. And a RAS is a Richmond Agitation Sedation Scale and has a scale that goes from minus four to plus four. And what we shoot for is minus one, which means the patient is drowsy and will awake to your voice. Typically, we use propofol. Occasionally, you'll see Presidex, but most of the time we use propofol for these patients. The next thing we consider for neuro is their pain, especially after extubation. Typically, we'll have standing Tylenol, one gram Q8, and then we'll add on some opiates, 
if they're intubated, usually we'll use IV fentanyl. Once they're extubated, we'll transition them to PO oxy. Then lastly, the thing that I typically focus on when patients are in the ICU, especially for multiple days, is making sure that they get good sleep and avoid delirium. Sleep can usually be aided with normal biological conditions, so closing the drapes at nighttime, reducing the lights and noises and interruptions at nighttime to hopefully allow them to get as much sleep as possible. This can be particularly diff difficult in the ICU because nurses will need to check levels, uh, check hemodynamic levels, usually Q1 hour. And so this can usually be one of the biggest interruptions, but minimizing how many people come into their room and how much noise is being made can be really helpful, as well as making sure that the patient stays awake during the day so that they're on an appropriate awake sleep schedule. And this is usually one of the best ways to avoid delirium. But if needed, we may start an antipsychotic like Seroquel that can also help avoid delirium and may be helpful in terms of a patient sleeping throughout the night. Another sleep aid that we tend to use is Remelteon. So next organ system that we talk about is cardiovascular, and this is typically where the heart failure um, team takes over and sort of talks about the plan. But in terms of the plan, you can sort of divide the cardiac function into four different buckets. That's preload, afterload, contractility, and rate and rhythm. In terms of the monitors that we're using to see how the cardiac function is going in this patient, they will have a pulmonary artery catheter. So that allows us to measure the pressures in the right ventricle um, and be able to see what the pulmonary pressures are doing as well. We will also measure a central venous pressure from one of the central lines. We will have an arterial line, which allows us beat-to-beat -beat, uh, hemodynamic information. We will also measure cardiac outputs, both with thermodilution on the pulmonary artery catheter. We will also use the FIC calculated cardiac output using a mixed venous oxygen saturation. And now let's get into a little bit about the plan. So for preload, this is typically determined by the CVP that we're watching. And we like to keep these patients with a CVP less than 10 or keep it in the single digits as we've been saying. The way we can accomplish this is typically with diuretics. Ultimately, what we want to do is reduce any stress or any harm to the right ventricle. The right ventricle is at a particularly vulnerable position because patients can have underlying increased pulmonary vascular resistance from their underlying heart failure to begin with, but also just post-transplant from being on cardiopulmonary bypass and heart mismatch sizes, patients can have increased pulmonary vascular resistance, which puts an afterload stress on the right ventricle, and it makes it that much harder for the right ventricle to tolerate increased volumes. By keeping the CVP down, we're able to decrease the amount of stress that's getting placed on the right ventricle. The other thing we do for the right ventricle is we will typically have these patients on inhaled nitric oxide, which is a pulmonary vascular dilator. And by using it as an inhaled medication, it's going to the alveoli and acting directly on the pulmonary vasculature, which reduces the afterload of the right ventricle and keeps that ventricle very healthy. Right ventricle failure is an independent prognosticator for poor outcomes for heart transplant patients. So that's why we, another reason why we pay particular attention to how the right ventricle is doing 
and again, reducing the amount of stress, both, both from a preload and afterload perspective. In terms of the left-sided afterload, patients will typically be on vasopressors such as levofed or norepinephrine, as well as vasopressin. This is used to keep a MAP greater than 65 or 70, depending on your surgeon or your heart failure team's preferences. The main idea of maintaining MAPs is to maintain coronary perfusion so that you're perfusing both the left and the right ventricle, as well as perfusing other organs, particularly the kidneys, which are at an increased risk of injury just from being on bypass and also going through cardiac surgery. So maintaining perfusion is important for both of these organs as well as all other organs like the heart, the liver, and so on. Over time, we'll try and wean these pressors and this is usually done in a stepwise fashion. So ideally you'll wean the level fed off first because this has more of an effect on the pulmonary vasculature versus vasopressin since there are no vasopressin receptors on the pulmonary vasculature. And so by taking off your norepinephrine, theoretically you can reduce any increase in PVR that you're causing from that. And then after that, you would slowly titrate the vasopressin down as well, making sure that the patient is maintaining his blood pressure without these medications. For contractility, we usually use epinephrine for our medication. This again will be determined by our cardiac outputs, our mixed venous oxygenation, making sure that the patient has appropriate output from their heart. We can reduce our infusion rates, watching both the cardiac output, cardiac index, and the CVP as well. The CVP allows us to make sure that fluid is moving through the heart and not getting congested on the right side of the heart. And the cardiac output and cardiac index allows us to have a marker for how well the heart is functioning. And so if all of these numbers stay stable, we can continue to wean off of the epinephrine. In terms of rate and rhythm, because these patients are gonna have some degree of diastolic dysfunction, they're gonna be relatively heart rate dependent. So that means we want their heart rate to be at an elevated rate, typically somewhere between 100 and 120. When these patients come out of cardiac surgery, they will have pacers in place, and so the pacer box is gonna be doing most of the rhythm and the rate control for these patients. As these patients recover over the course of a couple of days, we'll try and see what their native rhythm is under the pacer box by pausing the pacer box. If the patient's heart rate is below 100, let's say for example, like 60 to 80, typically we'll keep them pacing until we're satisfied that all of the vasopressor supports are off and then see how they tolerate a lower heart rate. Usually the bottom or the lowest that we wanna go with a heart rate is gonna be around 80. But again, it's gonna determine how well patients are able to compensate when they're up and moving around and exerting themselves. The next organ system that we talk about in our plan is gonna be the pulmonary system. So when your patients come to you intubated, the goal is always to get them extubated, obviously. And usually the next step you have to take once you're able to extubate the patient is you go to high flow nasal cannula. The benefit that you get from high-flow nasal cannula is not only an increased amount of fraction of inspired oxygen that you can deliver, but you can also deliver the inhaled nitric oxide through this route. So as you're titrating down the inhaled nitric oxide, your patient's oxygenation level may be totally fine, and they may be able to get off the high-flow, but because it's the way we deliver the inhaled nitric oxide, we sort of wait until the patient is able to tolerate no pulmonary vasodilator before we eventually take off the high-flow nasal cannula. 
the difficulty with keeping the high flow nasal cannula on and the inhaled nitric oxide on for a prolonged period of time is the unit itself is quite big. And so if a patient is ready from a strength perspective and a physical therapy perspective to start moving around and walking around the unit, this can be a limiting factor in terms of coordinating how many people it takes to move the unit in coordination with a patient. The other thing we monitor for the pulmonary system is chest tube output. We want to make sure that the chest tubes are putting out less than 200 in terms of bloody output so that we know there's not accumulation of blood within the thoracic cavity from the surgery. We also like to make sure that there is no air leak, meaning that there is air leaking in the thoracic cavity from a potential pneumothorax. And if both of these things hold true, then usually we feel pretty comfortable pulling those chest tubes. The next organ system that plays a huge role in this whole complex is the renal function or the kidneys. Acute kidneys injuries are quite common after these surgeries with an incidence of around 25 to 50%. And a lot of these patients may end up needing a short run of dialysis in the realm of 12 to 22% of these patients. Now, dialysis and acute kidney injuries can come from a variety of reasons, whether it's impaired renal oxygenation during cardiopulmonary bypass, if they had a long clamp time, if they're having postoperative RV dysfunction, It's hard to say what would exactly prevent these kidney injuries. However, when they happen, we have to monitor them very closely. One of the first things you may start to notice is a rise in the potassium because potassium is mostly excreted through urine. And so if the patient is not making urine and they're not excreting their potassium, having high levels of potassium can be dangerous to the heart. And so we need to stay on top of that by treating hyperkalemia or high potassium with insulin and D50 as well as calcium and bicarb, and also creating a way for the patient to eliminate that. So that could be with a medication like Localma, which would allow a GI elimination of the potassium. If the volume becomes too great for the heart to handle, like if their CVP is getting too high or if their pulmonary pressures are starting to get too high or the right-sided pressures are getting too high on the pulmonary arterial catheter, or if they started to get high levels of hyperkalemia, then we would start discussing the potential need for continuous renal replacement therapy or dialysis. Besides the fact that volume status can be difficult for the heart to manage, having renal dysfunction also affects some of the immunosuppression that we will start the patient on. So graft rejection is one of the scariest things that can happen with heart transplants and can lead to a high rate of morbidity and mortality. And one of the best ways to reduce this is by putting the patient on immunotherapy to reduce the risk of graft failure. So hyperacute graft dysfunction can be diagnosed within 24 hours of the heart transplant. After that, it's usually divided into either left ventricular dysfunction, right ventricular dysfunction, biventricular dysfunction, and also categorized by how much inotropes or mechanical support the patient needs. In terms of the immunosuppression that patients will be started on, usually they will be on an anti-thymocyte or an anti-lymphocyte globulin or an interleukin-2 receptor antagonist. So when we start anti-rejection medication, we go through what's called an induction phase. And so we start the patient on methylprednisolone, which is an IV form of steroid, which helps as an immunosuppressant. We will also start the patient on mofetal or MMF, which is initially started IV, and then once the patient gets extubated, can be started PO. 
Ideally, you can get the patient on tacrolimus. However, if patients are having kidney dysfunction, you may start the patient on basiliximab, which can help delay the time that you need to start tacrolimus and allow the patient's kidneys to recover. The problem with tacrolimus is that it can cause worsening kidney injury and also cause a rise in the potassium as well. And so you want to wait until you're sure that the patient's kidneys functions are appropriate or at least trending in the right direction. Lastly, in terms of the immunosuppression, when you immunosuppress patients, that leads them open to different organisms or different infections that can be very deadly for these patients. So we have to put them on prophylactic medications. Most of the time, we will try and place patients on Bactrim to prevent PCP pneumonia or pneumocystis pneumonia. However, if the patient has renal dysfunction, then you can place then you can place the patient on ortovaquone, which can be a substitute for Bactrim. But ultimately, once the patient's renal function recovers, then Bactrim would be the better option here. Another infection that we worry about is CMV. And some of these donors can be CMV positive or cytomegalovirus positive. And so for these patients who receive donors that are CMV positive, we'll start them on valgancyclovir. Lastly, another prophylactic medication we'll start these patients on is a nystatin swish which is sort of an oral rinse to prevent any fungal infections in the mouth. Because these medications are so rarely used in general medicine or are very specific for transplant patients, we typically get a lot of guidance from a transplant pharmacist who's able to help us with our dosing and our scheduling of these medications. For example, the tacrolimus, we will slowly increase in terms of patients when they have renal dysfunction and ultimately we'll need to check blood levels to see what their TACRA level is, shooting for a level of eight to 10. But this is done in a stepwise fashion and they're able to really help us determine when it's appropriate to uptitrate the medication. The next thing I typically focus on is a GI system. So because these patients are on high dose steroids for a prolonged period of time, we'll put them on a prophylactic dose of protonics or pantoprazole which helps reduce the risk of stress-induced gastric ulcers from the steroids. Also, once they're extubated and are able to swallow, we'll start these patients on a transplant diet. The next thing I tend to focus on is hematological problems. Sometimes these patients will be a little bit anemic. Our goal is to keep the hematocrit greater than 23 for these patients, so we'll transfuse to that goal. Otherwise, we just make sure there's no obvious sources of bleeding, like increased bloody output from the chest tubes. And usually these patients do okay from that perspective. You may also see a drop in their platelets. And again, the goal for platelets is going to be greater than 50,000. And you just want to make sure that they're not having any sources of bleeding, which could be an issue if their platelets are low. Next thing I focus on is the endocrine system. These patients will tend to become hyperglycemic, both from the stress-induced hyperglycemia of the surgery, as well as being placed on high-dose steroids. So they will likely need an insulin infusion at the beginning of their ICU stay. But once their sugars start to normalize, particularly if they don't have any diabetic history, you can typically transition them to a sliding scale insulin that they would get subcutaneously. Last couple things I'll talk about in my plan will be the MSK system. So once they start getting liberalized from some of their lines and the high flow nasal cannula, we can start having them work with physical therapy, getting out of bed, walking around the unit. These are all important things for making sure that the patient is able to recover appropriately and maintain good muscular function. 
if they're walking around the unit and are mobilizing, typically we can hold subcutaneous heparin and not worry as much about DVT prophylaxis. Every day we'll discuss what lines the patient has, like their central line, pulmonary arterial catheter, arterial line, Foley, and decide which of those we can eliminate based on how the patient is progressing and what we're monitoring for that day and going forward. And by having these conversations on a daily basis and removing unnecessary invasive things, we can reduce the risk of hospital-acquired infections during their time in the ICU. In terms of long-term planning and watching the function of the heart transplant, that's usually done with intermittent transthoracic echoes and weekly biopsies of the heart. So for our patient, we had to do some line rearranging where this patient had central access in their right IJ, which we moved to their left IJ to allow for the interventional cardiologist to use a right internal jugular vein to go down and get a biopsy. For the biopsy, you typically hold any subcutaneous heparin for at least 24 hours prior to reduce any risk of bleeding, and then you would restart this medication again 24 hours after the biopsy was done. And then in terms of disposition, these patients typically stay in the ICU for probably a couple of weeks. We want to make sure that everything is going in the right direction and that they need very little monitoring on a day-to-day -day basis. We're not adjusting any of their medications. We can remove some of our invasive monitors that we have and ultimately prevent any risk of them bouncing back to the ICU. And that's pretty much how my plan goes. So this rotation has been excellent for learning about heart transplants and being able to see how a couple patients transition from immediately post-op to when we start the discussion of transitioning them to floor status has been very cool to see. And luckily, we haven't had any graft dysfunction and everything has trended in the right direction on a daily basis with a couple hiccups here and there that make the plan interesting and involve some learning points for me in terms of the decision-making when you come to those problem points. But I think one of the biggest takeaways I had from this rotation was being in the CVICU, potentially incorporating this sort of practice into my future job has really reaffirmed the fact that this is something I could see myself doing in the future and made me really happy that I went down the route of doing a fellowship. Patients come out to you very complex in terms of their medical history and their surgical history, and they need some fine-tuning before they're out of the weeds from their post-op period. And as the intensivist, you have a very active role in being able to make sure that they have a smooth road out of the ICU and in that immediate post-op phase. The amount of attention to detail that you need to do this job and the ability to think quickly on your feet and adjust to changing parameters on a constant basis are some of the few things that I really appreciate. The teams that we have here in terms of the nursing staff, the clinical coordinators, the heart failure transplants, and the surgical teams have all been phenomenal to work with and are very collaborative and do not mind teaching certain points of what they think is important in their realm. And the discussions that we've had during rounds regarding these plans have been very fruitful and very educational for, I think, everyone involved, not just myself. So I'm looking forward to more experiences like this 
And I hope you as a listener were able to take away a little bit of something from kind of what my life is like in the CVICU and also what it's like to take care of a heart transplant patient. So stay tuned for more stories like this and thanks for listening. If you like this episode of CMO, be sure to hit the subscribe button to the Behind the Drapes podcast where you can hear more episodes just like this and have the new episodes downloaded to your homepage as they come out. If you want to check out some of the educational content that I put out, check out my social media page on Instagram and TikTok and YouTube, and that's at Keywords by Kenny, at Keywords X Kenny, and that'll get you to these short videos that I put out about different educational topics related to anesthesia and the ICU.